want to briefly mention a few points about the building in which you are in. Some of you, of course, I, I, uh, I see are familiar faces, but there are a few new faces. So let me just cover the details here. We are the Institute of World Politics, and we are a graduate school of national security and international affairs. Uh, we focus on developing leaders with a sound understanding of international realities. If anyone is further interested in learning a little bit more about the school, please contact me after the event, and I'd be more than happy to answer your questions or direct you to the relevant parties. Um, I want to thank uh, IWP's friend and colleague, especially for, for helping us um, rather putting on this event and uh, allowing us to be the venue in which we do host this event. Um, Mark Moyer uh, for the, of the uh, Center for Military and Diplomatic History in the uh, Foreign Policy Initiative. We are indebted to your ability to make these events happen and, of course, uh, provide the, the lunch spread for, for hungry guests here. Uh, with that being said, again, I want to thank you all for coming. On behalf of IWP and Doubtless, too, I want to uh, hand it over to Mark so he can um, detail a little bit more about the lecture today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Uh, thanks to you and Katie and the rest of the staff at IWP for helping us put on this event and uh, a series of events we've done here. We are, um, as some of you already know, we are focused on bringing historians to Washington to talk about uh, issues that are of interest not just to historians, but to those who are thinking about and working on current affairs. And we uh, chose the subject for today's event because of uh, what you've probably seen is the uh, surge in interest in Andrew Jackson. As you probably know, he is one of, if not the favorite president of our new president, Donald Trump. Uh, he was also the subject of some controversy not too long ago when it was decided to uh, replace him uh, on the $20 bill with Harriet Tubman. Uh, and he's certainly someone who I think, I think remains a contested character. It's clearly uh, uh, a lot of people uh, don't necessarily view him as one of their favorites, but he does have a large following. And in terms of foreign policy, which is a primary focus, he's seen as the founder uh, of one of the principal strains of American foreign policy, the Jacksonian tradition, which is nationalist and focusing on uh, dealing with uh, mortal threats when uh, quite decisively, but not necessarily being as active abroad. Uh, but so when, once we decided we were interested in Andrew Jackson, I started looking uh, to see who was writing on the subject in a, in a compelling fashion. And fortunately, we found our speaker who happens to have written several books and also just has a, a recent essay that he's written on civil military relations that he's going to talk about today. And civil mil military relations is also a subject that uh, we think is quite important today, and we've had uh, Dr. Owens actually speak on that subject at, at another event a few months ago for us. So uh, we are delighted to bring you one of the nation's leading historians on, on Andrew Jackson. I'll give you a, a brief uh, background on him and then turn it over to him. So uh, Dr. Samuel Watson, uh, who, uh, he's Samuel Watson IV, his father the third is also uh, able to join us, which is great. Uh, but Samuel Watson is a professor of history at the United States Military Academy, where he directs theses on the United States since 1877 and teaches full range of U.S. and military history, including Cold War America, Warfare in the Age of Industrialization, and the Making of Modern America. Uh, and his research focuses on the U.S. Army between the Revolution and the War with Mexico. Uh, he's a co-editor of the electronic textbook, The West Point History of Warfare, which won the 2016 Society for Military History, George C. Marshall Foundation Prize for the use of digital technology teaching military history. Uh, he's also the co-editor of the West Point History of the Civil War, which won the 2014 Army Historical Foundation Distinguished Writing Award, uh, and also the forthcoming West Point History of the American Revolution. Uh, perhaps he's... Uh, most well-known and distinguished award was uh, in 2014 when he won the Society for Military History's Distinguished Book Award, which uh, for those who may not be familiar with the society, it's the premier uh, body for the study of military history, and the Distinguished Book Awards um, are, are highly sought after and 
prize that uh, only a few people have, have the good fortune to receive. So he actually received it for two volumes that go together. One is Jackson's Sword, the Army Officer Corps on the American Frontier, 1810 to 1821, and Peacekeepers and Conquerors, the Army Officer Corps on the American Frontier, 1821 to 1846, uh, both published by the University Press of Kansas. So I'll turn it over to uh, Dr. Watson. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mark, and uh, thank you all for coming out here on such a wonderful day. Uh, and thank you to uh, both of, the, of our institutions here, uh, Mark's Center for Military and Diplomatic History and the Institute for World Politics uh, for putting this together and uh, helping me with my transportation and uh, get, getting me down to speak to you all. Uh, <clears throat> I'm, uh, well, first I should say that uh, the, the views I express are not those of the United States Military Academy, the Department of the Army, the Department of the Defense, or any other government agency. Uh, and a as you'll see, it's good to be uh, forewarned. I am not a fan of Andrew Jackson, at least in terms of civil military relations uh, and many of his policies. He was a very effective general and a very effective president, but uh, but not a not a very well-restrained well or balanced one. Uh, Mark was referring to uh, some of the books and whatnot, so uh, I should give this a plug because this is uh, the origin of the talk I'm giving today. Uh, down in Florida, they're coming up on uh, Jackson's 200th anniversary uh, of his invasion of, of Spanish Florida in 1818, uh, what became called the First Seminole War. Uh, and then his uh, governorship of Florida as the first territorial governor in 1821. So the various Florida historians put together a book, uh, Andrew Jackson in Florida, from the Florida Historical Society, uh, and they invited me to uh, write about Jackson territorial expansion and civil military relations. Uh, and then my research, uh, th this is the first of the two volumes that Mark referred to. Uh, my research began with the United States Army and its officer corps. Uh, and I was talking to one of the IWP faculty uh, <clears throat> that uh, I started out studying military professionalism. But so often military professionalism is seen as being a matter of expertise and capability in us usually conventional uh, military operations, war fighting you know, against large uh, state-sponsored armies. Uh, and I realized that in the period that I was studying, the Army's mission was usually to uh, intimidate. It was to intimidate the Indians to try to force them to move west. It was to persuade or, if necessary, intimidate whites to prevent them from attacking the Indians and getting us in, getting the United States into wars you know, that would be expensive in, in blood and treasure. Uh, it was to deter the British uh, or to intimidate the Spanish. Uh, as Jackson did very effectively in in, uh, in winning Florida, uh, but rarely was it to actually fight major wars, conventional wars. Uh, officers at that time, the early 1800s, they often thought in terms of fighting the British. Right, the British were sort of like the the premier enemy, uh, and you know if we could defeat the British, you know if you could do that as as an officer, as a general, you know your reputation would be made. But in fact. Most of what they did most of the time was some version of persuasion or coercion or intimidation. So it's almost uh, sort of uh, diplomacy, you know, diplomacy backed by force. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> rather than uh, rather than the sort of uh, you know professional institutions or training or uh, you know practice for uh, combat that that many historians and professionals have studied. So. In effect, I became as much a historian of civil-military relations, uh, mostly from the military side, as one of military professionalism. And in this period I'm studying, uh, most of what the Army is doing is on the frontiers, or what we sometimes call the borderlands, and Jackson in particular, right, in the South, uh, and on the, the frontier between the United States and Spanish Florida. Uh, so I'm going to talk uh, talk about Jackson as both a general uh, and, and as a president. Uh, but we should start out. Uh, you know, I'm a historian. Uh, I'm going to you know be looking at a fairly, I suppose, narrow slice of our history uh, in, in chronology. 
but uh, I think we should start out by specifying uh, some criteria, defining some terms. So what do we citizens of the United States want from civil military relations? Uh, and there are two sides to this, right? Uh, we want military subordination to civilian direction, and we want civilian support uh, for military efforts to secure the objectives that are set by civilian leaders, right? So civil military relations is kind of like a, ba uh, a balance beam, right? They're competing, uh, I don't know if you want to say imperatives, but they're, they're competing uh, drives there, competing demands. Uh, but it is a balance beam in which the military ultimately serves society, uh, as society is represented by civilian leaders. So what do effective civil-military relations require? Uh, and so again, effective would mean both subordinate, the military isn't out of control, it's, it's a civilian government, representative government, but also an effective military conducting an effective or um, supporting or executing an effective foreign policy. So the first thing you probably want is, uh, or first thing we think we, we would want is uh, some experience, that each side has some experience of the other side's perspective and the other side's uh, uh, problems and the other side's concern. Uh, and Jackson had some of that because he had been a, a prominent politician before he became a general in the War of 1812. So in, in a sense, he was ideally positioned to bring the two sides of civil military relations together effectively. But on the other hand, and this is where Jackson uh, faces so much criticism, uh, effective civil military relations, any situation where you need a balance, requires a, a balanced temperament. And Jackson wa was a man of, of great passion, great emotion, great determination, and often uh, great willfulness uh, and disregard for the opinions of others, including his, his uh, constitutional superiors. Uh, Again, Jackson had a great deal of experience or potential experience to be able to understand both perspectives in civil military relations, but his willfulness, uh, and you can take this really as the thesis of my talk, his willfulness, his determination, his sense of, of, of self-righteousness uh, meant that he often interacted with civilian leaders when he was a general or later with military leaders when he was president. Uh, in tones of military command rather than uh, civilian political uh, compromise or coalition building. Uh, and that worked when he was president. He could tell the generals what to do, right? But when he was a general, that, that created a, a lot of issues. Uh, now, Jackson did reshape Amer American civil-military relations, uh, which had been kind of inchoate uh, and, and, and not very firmly developed uh, before him. And this was especially true during his tenure as commander of the Southern Division of the National Standing Army, the, the regular army, uh, one of the army's top two positions from the War of 1812 until his retirement uh, from the army to become governor of Florida uh, in 1821. Most Americans probably think of Jackson as a citizen soldier and a leader of volunteers. I think that's and from New Orleans, right? That's sort of the, the Jackson myth or one of the Jackson myths. Uh, but in fact, Jackson valued the regular army. He led its soldiers. He had a, a regular commission. He started out as, as a militia general you know, in, uh, from Tennessee, but was then uh, commissioned directly into the regular army as, as, a, as a general. Uh, and so he led regular soldiers as well as volunteers and militiamen to uh, victories over Britain, uh, Spain, and various Native American societies uh, in the South during this period. So what was Jackson's track record uh, in civil military relations, first as a general officer uh, commanding the, Ameri the main American land force in the South? Uh, well, he repeatedly, three times in 1814, 1816, and 1818, went beyond and indeed counter to policy instructions from the president and the War Department by attacking Spanish forces uh, in Pensacola uh, in West Florida uh, in 1814 and 1818, and then by authorizing an incursion by uh, his subordinates into Spanish Florida in 1816. Uh, and, you know, no, no, you know, this is back when Congress did actually declare war, right? So no, no declarations of war. Uh, and, and in each of these cases, he had received instructions from the War Department and even from the president, you know, do not attack the Spanish fort, one of the main one being at Pensacola. Uh, within the United States during this period, Jackson declared martial law 
uh, in New Orleans in 1815. And he detained a federal judge, he detained other prominent local citizens, and he ordered the evacuation of people of French and Spanish origin from the coast to the interior. It's not clear to what extent the evacuation was carried out, but he, he uh, in each of these cases, he asserted a sweeping authority as the military theater commander, uh, believing that he was responsible uh, and for national security there, and that he was operating under what he called the natural law of self-defense. Uh, now, in doing this, he, he was asserting himself as the tribune of American national security policy, American diplomacy, American formulations, etc. Uh, so whatever we think of, of that natural law of self-defense as a principle, you know, a, perhaps a not unreasonable one, uh, he was usurping congressional uh, and civilian executive authority. U.S. policy laid out by the president and the secretary of war was not to attack the Spanish. Uh, and even if we could reconcile Jackson's doing so uh, with the congressional authority to declare war, rather the United States sought to avoid war with Spain, in particular after the War of 1812, right? So in the 1816, the 1818 incidents, the United States, the, the president, the War Department were cons was concerned uh, that attacking Spain would give the British a pretext to essentially resume the war. It's, it's really not until about 1818 or so that the United States, that its leaders feel comfortable that the War of 1812 isn't going to start up again over some, you know, some incident. Uh, that they, they feel that the British are sort of waiting to attack us again uh, until John Quincy Adams helps to negotiate uh, peace with them, uh, with the British. In Louisiana, U.S. policy, so thinking about martial law in New Orleans in 1815, in Louisiana, U.S. policy since the Louisiana Purchase a decade before had been to gain the support of the Francophone majority uh, through conciliation so that they would voluntarily give their allegiance to the United States. Uh, more and more uh, Anglophone, you know, Americans, uh, you know, original Americans, I guess, uh, native-born Americans were moving into uh, Louisiana. So it was becoming uh, an Anglo majority. But up to maybe about 1820, uh, the majority of, of the, the white citizens of uh, Louisiana were, uh, you know, French speakers. And so arresting them or forcing them to move away from the coast and you know, uh, displaying a distrust for them when, after all, it was the British who, who were attacking Louisiana, uh, you know, seems very uh, miscalculated move on Jackson's part. Uh, now, Jackson did build an effective coalition that, you know, we famously tell the story of, you know, he gets uh, Jean and Pierre Lafitte and he gets a whole, you know, there, there's a, a uh, battalion of uh, African-American militia. You know, there's a whole range of people who help him and, and groups who help him to defend Louisiana. So there are times when Jackson displays a remarkable uh, diplomacy or diplomatic ability. Uh, but it's often a question of two steps forward and one step back. Now, Jackson did have some reason to believe that Secretary of War and later President James Monroe would not be unhappy if Spain, the Indians in Florida, and various refugees from American slavery in Florida uh, were intimidated and the British were prevented from using Pensacola as a base, or the British were prevented from allying with the, the uh, Indians in Florida or the refugees from slavery there. Uh, so, Jackson and Monroe. Uh, were probably not that far apart in, in what they hoped to achieve in, in their ultimate objectives, but had very different ways of, of trying to get there. Uh, <clears throat> Monroe, on the whole, is pretty cautious. Now, on the other hand, six months after the forces under Jackson's command had invaded Florida for a second time in 1816, uh, and again, con contrary to repeated War Department instructions, President Monroe, the incoming President Monroe, this is December 1816, so he had actually... Uh, been inaugurated yet, but uh, offered Jackson a cabinet post as Secretary of War. Uh, Jackson uh, declined, but the offer signaled that Monroe recognized Jackson's popularity coming from the Battle of New Orleans, and that he probably shared the Tennesseans' expansionism. Right, so, so Monroe it, uh, bears some blame here. I'm not wearing a James Monroe tie either, uh, because M Monroe is maybe giving mixed signals, or Monroe he he'll. He'll give one side of the. He'll give one set of signals that he should, but not the other. Right? He 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 doesn't give the caveats. He 
he doesn't doesn't reinforce his restraints on Jackson. <clears throat> Jackson was certain that he had popular support, right? He sees himself as as you know, representing particularly the South and the West and the frontier. Uh, and so he pressed ahead of Monroe to say nothing of, of uh, Monroe's secretaries of war, uh, William H. Crawford, uh, and then John C. Calhoun after him. Uh, Monroe was a cautious expansionist who was driven to self-restraint by the defeats inflicted by American force, uh, def inflicted on American forces uh, throughout most of the War of 1812. Like most civilian policymakers and men of affairs in general, Monroe worried about a resumption of war with Britain. Jackson, in contrast, had only faced the British in a single campaign, uh, crushing their offensive against New Orleans. So Jackson, you know, he's ne never been defeated, uh, and he's never really, I guess, seen the British at their best. So while most army officers, most of Jackson's subordinates, respected British prowess uh, due to their experience, mostly on the Canadian frontier, Jackson scorned the British almost as much as he despised the Spanish, and that means that he's not really worried about the British uh, uh, intervening in a conflict over Florida. Confident in his military prowess, certain that he represented the zeal of Southern and Western whites for expansion uh, at Spanish and Indian expense, Jackson moved against various Indian nations, the Red Stick Creeks, uh, his own former Choctaw and Cherokee allies, uh, and the Seminoles, with little regard for the niceties of diplomacy or for the constitutional separation of powers. Right? So really, a lot of this story is a, is a story, is a question of the rule of law. Uh, Jackson's disrespect for civilian authority demonstrated in those in invasions and the martial law uh, was symptomatic of his disrespect, indeed, for constitutionalism uh, and the rule of law when it got in his way. His military insubordination prefigured his disparagement of John Marshall, the Supreme Court, uh, and congressional Whigs, much as the unequal treaties he forced on the Creek, Cherokee, Choctaw, and Chickasaw in the 18 teens presaged those that his agents forced on the same societies, uh, contrary to the language of the Indian Removal Act uh, during the 1830s. The Indian Removal Act passed in, in 1830, passed by a very, very narrow majority, promised that the Indians would be persuaded to emigrate voluntarily, right? They wouldn't be driven west at the point of the bayonet or, uh, you know, uh, forced into uh, transit camps uh, by, by military force. Now, unfortunately, the, the, the story of, of Jackson's uh, usurpations doesn't end here. Uh, between the second and third incursions into the territory of a neutral power, Spain, uh, Old Hickory twice demonstrated his sense that military authority could trump civilian authority, or at any rate, his authority could trump other people's authority. Right. It, it's not clear that he really thought of this in terms of civil military terms. I should caveat that. Is, I think he thinks of it more in terms of, I know it's right, I'm going to do it. Uh, <clears throat> but he believed this even in matters of routine process, where he and his elected superiors agreed on uh, questions of substance. Throughout 1816 and 1817, Jackson uh, carried on a long controversy disputing the Secretary of War's power to correspond directly with officers under the general's command. Jackson claimed that doing so would uh, destroy military discipline. While Jackson was correct that frequent War Department uh, direct correspondence with junior officers could prove uh, confusing and disruptive, uh, his shrill tone uh, that implicitly denied any civilian jurisdiction or oversight uh, would, would shock any officer today and would suffice to make the general a case study in insubordination if his other transgressions uh, were not so much more egregious. Though successive secretaries of war, uh, Crawford, Calhoun, uh, firmly uh, maintained their authority to seek reports and issue orders outside the military chain of command. And that might seem strange to us, but this is, you know, the communications are, are very slow back then. Uh, so when time was critical or ordinary communications seemed disrupted, they would do that. Uh, but Jackson was not sanctioned in any, any way. Uh, Indeed, when he was assigned to command the operations uh, against Indians along the Florida border at the end of 1817, that then becomes his invasion, uh, his third invasion uh, of Spanish Florida, he bypassed the civilian authorities to raise volunteers from Tennessee uh, under his own imprimatur, uh, contrary to the established practice and the constitutional principle of legislative control over raising armies uh, and 
uh, Congress uh, investigated that, but as, as we'll see, refused to censure him. But the idea was that if, if you wanted to raise volunteers, you had to, the president had to raise them, that the general could not just raise volunteers, right? Because that would, in the, their fear of standing armies in the early republic, that would be like Roman generals raising volunteers and ultimately overthrowing the Roman Republic. So who, uh, raising military force would have to be done through some civilian authority, uh, whether that's federal or whether it's by, by a state governor. Two other incidents during the 1818 invasion of Florida are equally revealing. First, Jackson threatened to refuse quarter, uh, to refuse the possibility of, of uh, surrender, uh, well, to refuse, yeah, to, to refuse the possibility uh, of quarter to the Spanish garrison at Pensacola, and in fact, to kill the Spanish governor uh, unless they surrendered before he began his assault. Now, in Europe, it's common to say, you know, this is your last chance, right? We'll give you the honors of war if you surrender now and march out. Otherwise, we're, we're going to assault your fortress, and, you know, who knows what happens. The soldiers will get out of control. But Jackson was unusually blunt in saying, I'm going to kill, or I'm going to have the Spanish governor killed, right? As opposed to my soldiers will get out of control and they probably won't accept some of your soldiers surrendering. But this was phrased as, I'm going to kill your, I'm going to kill your entire garrison uh, unless they surrender right now. Uh, and maybe if they surrender a little too late, then I'll, then I'll kill them, or at least I'll reserve the right to kill them. The personal extremity of, of that kind of violence uh, threatened to make Jackson's aggression less reconcilable through diplomacy, right? We could say, you know, here's Jackson, you know, he, he's, he's the mailed fist, right? And then John Quincy Adams will come on, come back, come and, you know, make the Spanish feel better. Uh, but Jackson's threatening that possibility uh, because although Spain could accept another American seizure of its outpost in Florida that Jackson had done, you know, in 1814, had done four years before, uh, and especially if the U.S. promised that it would evacuate the territory, which they commonly did, right? The U.S. would invade, and then the U.S. would say, okay, you guys got to take care of the Indians. You know, don't, don't let the Indians attack us, and the, the U.S. would pull back. Uh, but if Jackson had actually, uh, you know, murdered the king's representative, the Spanish king's representative, uh, and massacred his soldiers, that might have been harder to brook. That, that would be pretty clearly an act of war. Uh, much harder to, to smooth over. Uh, also, during, during the 1818 campaign, Jackson hinted for, well, I guess we're past hinting, uh, at disdain for civilian authority in a strident reaction to the murder of allied Indians, uh, some Creek Indians, uh, by Georgia militia at the village of Chiha. This is referred to as the Chiha Massacre. Uh, so the Georgians were, were in the wrong, but Jackson immediately asserted his military authority. Again, is it his authority? Is it military authority? You know, how, how did he see that? But he immediately asserted that he had the authority over the killers uh, to try them uh, in military courts. Uh, and he wrote to the governor of Georgia uh, as if governor of Georgia were one of Jackson's military subordinates. Jackson also proved contemptuous of legal authority in the civilian realm. Uh, first, I, I mentioned uh, uh, martial law in New Orleans, uh, but once he's invaded Florida for what turns out to be the final time in 1818, uh, he usurped both U.S. and Spanish authority by essentially declaring martial law there. After he seized the Spanish outpost at St. Mark's, which is uh, south of Tallahassee on the Gulf Coast, uh, contrary to the explicit instructions that had already been sent uh, uh, to him and to his subordinates, he executed two British citizens and two Native American leaders as unlawful combatants, uh, but without approval from or even consultation with the president. Uh, in both 1815 in New Orleans uh, and in 1818 in, in Florida, he disregarded the, the decisions of the military courts he himself convened. So those courts said, you know, don't don't uh, don't uh, arrest Louis uh, Louis Allier, who was one of the French citizens in 1815. The court said, don't execute you know these two British citizens who uh, probably had been aiding the, the Seminole Indians uh, organizing against the U.S. 
but Jackson uh, overrode uh, his, his subordinates' uh, decisions in those courts and went ahead uh, and hung the two Britons uh, and the two Indians. Uh, the Indians he didn't give any sort of trial to. So when called to account by congressional committees for usurping uh, con legislative authority, uh, Jackson went his sort of final step, the, the final uh, example of, of his uh, egregious behavior uh, by threatening to uh, cut the ears off a Pennsylvania senator, uh, Abner Laycock, who, uh, who was criticizing him. So Jackson had proven willful, uh, perhaps to the point of, uh, of, of almost an instability in, in, in uh, this really lawless violence, right? contrary to uh, constitution, contrary to executive direction, contrary to international norms. They didn't really have international law back then, but you could say international custom. But the executive and Congress reacted only with mild rebukes, and this did not dissuade Jackson uh, from, from this willful lawless path. Uh, though he was fined uh, for some of his actions at New Orleans in 1815, uh, his supporters in Congress got that fine rescinded in the 1840s, uh, and of course he went on to invade Spanish Florida uh, twice more. Uh, he rejected even President Monroe's questions about his aggression in 1818. Monroe sent him a set of questions. Hey, what are you doing? Don't you think maybe should we need to figure out a way to explain this? Uh, and Jackson said, nope, doesn't really need any explanation. I was the military commander. I was defending the United States. They were the enemy. I got the job done. Do you have any questions? No, you don't. Uh, and Monroe backed away. Uh, and Secretary of State John Quincy Adams, who I'm wearing on my tie, uh, who later opposed Jackson, right? And we think of him as sort of Jackson's en enemy from, from uh, the presidential contest. Uh, but Adams supported Jackson very strongly. And Adams said to Monroe, hey, look, he got the job done. You know, let's, we don't really need a, a big discussion about this. Let's just push it forward. The Spanish will give in uh, and we'll get Florida. Congress conducted the investigations, but the House voted down resolutions condemning Jackson, while the Senate tabled the critical report made by its committee, whose chairman Jackson had threatened with mutilation, uh, and whose chairman, that Pennsylvania senator, promptly joined in the unanimous vote ratifying the treaty in which Spain ceded uh, Florida to the United States. So in the end, Congress, including Jackson's most ardent critics, accepted the product of Jackson's actions. Uh, the, the session of Florida to the U.S. Let, let me turn and, and uh, finish up by talking a little bit about Jackson's uh, civil-military relations with Jackson as president. Uh, so at this point during the 1830s, if, if one knows about these things, one is probably used to thinking that the Jacksonians didn't like the regular army, they didn't like West Point, they preferred volunteer uh, volunteer and citizen soldiers. Uh, and that was true of a lot of the Jacksonians, his followers, uh, but not the case in practice. Uh, the Jacksonians could have replaced West Point. They could have opened up commissions to a variety of, of other sources, to militiamen, to volunteers, to frontiersmen, what have you. Uh, but they pretty consistently and almost entirely maintained the policy of the military academy monopoly uh, on new officer commissions. And they gradually expanded the regular army uh, by about a third between 1833 and, and the war with Mexico uh, to execute Indian removal uh, and Jackson's other expansionist policies. So Jackson, in effect, relied on, uh, relied on the regular army uh, that many of his followers uh, criticized uh, to achieve his objectives. Now, th this produced uh, some, some friction with now Jackson as the president between him, uh, between Jackson and his, uh, and his military subordinates. A number of senior ar army officers, senior army leaders, had privately supported Jackson for president in 1828. They thought he'd make a good president because of his, his uh, aggressiveness and you know, that he would defend American national security. He would advance American interests. Uh, but... You know, between 1821, the session of Florida, and Jackson's election, there had been, that's only seven years, but there had been a period, a sort of strategic pause for the United States 
you know, there hadn't been any pressing national security threats. Uh, and the army had sort of, I guess we could say, had focused inward a bit, uh, developing it, its, its professional institutions, uh, and had, for reasons that are st still need some explanation, uh, had become much less belligerent toward Indians in general. And maybe you could say that they felt that the Indian threat had largely been defeated and it wasn't such a, you know, it didn't require such extreme measures. Uh, so when Jackson moves forward with the policy of Indian removal, a lot of army officers were hesitant, reluctant, uh, um, skeptical of those policies and particularly felt that those policies violated uh, treaties, which are part of the Constitution, right, violated some America, previous American laws uh, that, uh, for relations with the Indians. Uh, and many officers felt that the United States was being unnecessarily aggressive toward the Indians. And many of these officers didn't have a lot of sympathy for the, the Southern and the Western frontiersmen. Uh, you know, and so this is a matter of class and culture as, as much as anything else. Uh, in executing Indian removal, uh, as president, Jackson micromanaged his generals, executing far closer and more capricious supervision than Madison or Monroe had, had exerted over him. Uh, and so again, is this, ja is, it, is this a question of civil military relations or is this a question of Jackson, right? You, you could dismiss a lot of this by saying, well, it's Jackson and he's, he's, uh, he's the exception rather than the rule. Uh, but as a result, many senior military commanders actually became anti-Jacksonians and Whigs, again, privately, you know, with the exception of Winfield Scott staying out of politics. Uh, but, and I think the key here and the key takeaway in terms of civil military relations is that Jackson aside, the Army's uh, commanders persevered and they executed, they executed his policies, his policies they were skeptical of, uh, policies that many of them uh, doubted the morality of. Uh, but the Army uh, juggled the sometimes contradictory requirements of treaties and law, uh, trying to moderate their impact while remaining subordinate uh, to the constitutional authorities of the President and Congress. So in the 18-teens, we've got a military, or at least a senior military commander who's very insubordinate, uh, usurping a lot of civilian authority, uh, and yet the president and Congress aren't really san aren't sanctioning him. Uh, he gets elected as president, right, which would appear to validate uh, his, his uh lawless and unconstitutional actions, right, that the ends had in effect justified the means for the majority of the voters. Uh, and in the 1830s, he goes on to push a pretty aggressive policy uh, toward Native Americans. And in the 1830s, as in the 18-teens, the army largely supports him. Uh, but now, instead of supporting him because they're, they are aggressive, they want to push out the British, push out the Spanish, or they, in the 18-teens, hated the Indians, now they're supporting him really out, much more out of constitutional principle, right? They're saying, in, in effect, look back, you know, are we going to act the way Jackson acted 20 years ago, or are we going to subordinate, our, subordinate ourselves to his policies, even if we disagree with them, right? And that, that for the military is sort of the, the essence of, uh, of responsible civil, civil military relations, is that you're going to execute policies even if you individually or some group of officers around you uh, disagree with them. And so although the 1830s proved a difficult time uh, for the army, and, and many officers felt that Jackson was, was, uh, was micromanaging them too much and was, was, setting the, was putting them in, in very difficult positions, uh, demanding that they succeed without getting him in any trouble or making the administration look bad. On the whole, what we get coming out of the 1830s is a much more balanced civil military relations. Uh, it, it is a uh, much clearer military subordination to civilian authority. And at the same time, uh, a, a reliance by 
by the executive branch, by Congress, by the federal government on the military to execute some of its uh, you know, more controversial policies. So they, you, you get a sort of synergy here, and that synergy, I think, was uh, you know, bo both much more lawful and much more, const uh, much more effective uh, than the civil-military relations uh, when Jackson himself had been a general. So let me stop there, and I'll be happy to take questions. Uh, yes. Um, how did you, what you've been saying, play out the reunification crisis? Were there southern generals who were reluctant, but said, you know, the president is actually flooding? I mean, of still, they were thinking, you know, raising an army marching. Was there discontaminating office support about that? Uh, there's, there's not any discontent evident in, I've gone through, I think, probably about as many documents are, are available. There was concern, uh, the, the War Department did have the Army, uh, did have certain officers certify their loyalty to the United States, in, in effect, to sort of retake the, the oath. Uh, so they did have some suspicion about the loyalties of, of some officers here, mostly South Carolinians, you know, since it was focused there. Uh, but, you know, Jackson was, was very anti-nullification uh, and sent down one of his, I guess we'd say, military enemies, Winfield Scott. Uh, he and Scott had actually, I think, I think Scott challenged Jackson to a duel, and Jackson decided not to, but uh, back in the 18-teens. Uh, through, with all the, the mess that Jackson was in then. But Jackson sent Scott, and Scott turns out to, to be a very capable sort of military diplomat. He gets on very well with the South Carolinians on both sides, right, uh, and is able to, uh, you know, both show force, you know, and show the flag and also kind of smooth things over. So that that's a good example where Jackson, I, I think if Jackson had been there, Jackson would not be a good, you know, diplomat in, in Charleston during the nullification winter. But Jackson did have the ability to identify talent and to you know, send the right talent to the right place. Uh, Go ahead. I'd say more the former than the latter. Uh, Congress did have it, its various committees, and it had it created, uh, you know, investigatory uh, uh, committees or, or subcommittees. Uh, the communications were a big factor, and I think Jackson definitely drew on that, you know, as he thought, or if to the extent he thought, why am I doing this? I think Jackson saw it as I'm here, there in Washington, time is of the essence, I have to act. Uh, on the other hand, you know, when it came to the invasions of Florida, Jackson had received, you know, written orders that said, don't attack Pensacola, right? Don't attack Spanish posts. So, uh, Jackson, I would say Jackson had, I, I would say that that applied up to a point, uh, but the Jackson pretty consistently went past that point in, in, uh, seizing authority to uh, to take, you know, re really decisions of, of war and peace. Uh, and, you know, the good thing is the Spanish were, were very weak. They didn't really have the capacity to resist. And the British, for a variety of reasons, were, they, they were not going to resume the War of 1812. So, in, in effect, and, and, and one could argue that Jackson saw those things, right, and that Jackson uh, had a better understanding of the international situation that, than, than Monroe and the, the War Department. So again, one can say that, that Jackson is often very effective, but he has virtually no regard for process. The reason he was so successful was because he was able to get Yeah, yeah, so that's, I think that's certainly the case. Oh, wait, let me get him. <laughs> so why did Jackson get away with it? We understand the slowness of communications, but what 
Uh, I, I think principally because he had become so popular since the Battle of New Orleans and particularly in the South and the West. So you do have some critics in, in, the, in the Northeast, uh, but the Federalist Party is no longer very strong, so there's not really a, you know, a, a party base for, for criticism. Uh, and I think that the vast majority of, of American, you know, of, of white American citizens and, and American leaders did want to get the British and the Spanish and the Indians and, you know, uh, refugees from slavery, you know, get them out of Florida, secure Florida. So I think certainly his objectives were very much in line, uh, with, with those of most Americans. The, the real question in all of this is, you know, does the unjustify the means or to what extent is the unjustify the means or, you know, is, is maybe this is okay because then Jackson became president, right? And so, you know, and then there's really nobody like Jackson coming around for, you know, for a long, you know, perhaps until MacArthur. Uh, but, but I don't think you, you would want the majority of your generals to, to act in, in Jackson's banner. Areas. One is over during that period of time. I've never spent anything about Jackson's military uh, activities, but might have been a different political military understanding. Where, uh, and I'll use an example from the Fourth Crusade from Rome had, had instructions explicitly for the papacy not to sack Constantinople right. and they sacked So, the way that the orders to Jackson sort of get covered to you know, the politicians. period that I really talked about here. I think he becomes conscious of monetary issues really from, from the depression from 1819, the, the panic of 1819. Uh, and that, that, that sense of, of the um, disparities or, or bottlenecks in monetary flows, that that's going to influence him you know, then, then a decade later. But I think during the 18 teens, most of the time when he's a general, he's, he's focused, he, he's reacting to threats or what he sees as threats. Right. Yep. Right. <laughs> that is, that is an excellent question. I've my my conclusion in my book is, is that uh, you know one one can't say because if nothing else, people don't put these things on paper. But that it was certainly uh, you know irresponsible for Monroe to believe that that Jackson would uh, we uh, would stick to his orders. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. <laughs> So that's a that's a good blunt way to, to 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 conclude on yeah yeah so again you know did do the ends justify the means? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I think he, he shared the, the expansionism of, of most Americans, and certainly most Americans in the South and the West, and certainly most Americans who lived on or, or near the frontiers. Uh, so your question then might be, should he think of himself as, as their representative, or should he think of himself as a United States Army officer who is serving under the elected representatives for the United States as a whole, uh, and that there might be people, let's say, particularly in the Northeast, who maybe they share the expansionism, but they're worried about the British, or they don't think we should be so, they, they feel it's dishonorable to continually attack the Indians you know, without clear provocation. Uh, so, and that, that's another thing I see in my books is that the officer corps that in, let's say, 1815 did have a, uh, we could call it a sectional tinge, you know, they, a lot, the guys in the South, many of them saw themselves as Southerners. Uh, and then guys in the North, they thought in terms of the Canadian border, right? Uh, where you, we obviously weren't about to, you know, to, we, we tried it once, but, but we failed, right? So, uh, but by the 1830s, uh, partly because they've had that pause in the 1820s, uh, and I think partly because uh, they've thought a little bit about, you know, whether they all want to be Jacksons, or whether they all can be Jacksons, or whether it would be better to, you know, sort of follow the Constitution. Uh, and then, and partly because more and more, you know, the junior officers, they're all coming out of West Point and they're being sort of socialized. You know, the idea is you're coming together and the guy from South Carolina and the guy from Pennsylvania, you know, will be together and they're being told they're U.S. Army officers. And so the, the commissioning and then the socialization of the officer corps is much more national than it had been, let's say, before the war. Right. And so it's a different culture. Right. I would say that, that he is definitely the, the, the exception in, in how pretty consistently disrespectful he is. Uh, now, because he is that one exception, you, you can say, well, maybe it's not. It's not, it's not the U.S. Army was undermining civilian authority, it's, you could say, Jackson as an individual, it, it probably wouldn't matter, you know, if Jackson were, uh, if Jackson were a civilian politician, he would try to do what he wants. That's, you know, the, the Whigs in the 1830s call him King Andrew, because they feel he's very high-handed, and he's acting as if he were a general again. Being in the military gives him that force, right, gives him the command over the soldiers, that he can do these things in a way that a civilian politician you know, generally can't. The civilian politician has to get people together to vote on something. So you, you can see Jackson's willfulness and his, his personal aggression a lot more clearly as a general uh, because of, of, of that power. Thank you, Dr. Watson. If you could Thank you. Me a round of applause for